0: Today we're continuing our series. I know last week we kind of talked about the end of the series in hosting the Holy Spirit. Um, but this week, when I heard that I had the opportunity um, to preach today, I decided to give my little epilogue to the series. You know how like you watch a movie and then after the credits, there's a little epilogue that leads to something else. Today's my personal epilogue to our series, Hosting the Holy Spirit. I'm calling this series, Visitor or Guest, Keeping the Holy Spirit at Home in Us. So, you know, when we first started building our hospitality team at Livingstone Church, okay, and when we start really learning, studying, how can we be the most hospitable team when people come through the doors and welcome people well, we went through some training. In this training, they told us, if you have people come to visit you the first time, do not call them visitors, call them guests, okay? I was like, never thought about that before. What does that mean? Well, a visitor comes and visits. And it doesn't matter how great the visit was, they one day will go home, right? They'll leave. But a guest come and there's a potential for the guest to stay with you, to remain at home with you. Does that make sense? So that's why we don't don't say first-time visitors, we say first-time guests. Now, my motivation for today's message is the same thing for the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit comes and visits us, right? It's a great visit. You love his presence. You feel warm and cozy. You love the intimacy you feel with God. But then, Monday's clear, or you go back to work, or you leave the conference, you leave the retreat, and next thing you know, everything's back to normal, and you no longer feel the intimacy with God again, right? And what your life, your spiritual life becomes a yo-yo, it's up and down, up and down, there's instability, okay? Emotional highs, spiritual highs, followed by, you know, just leaking that presence, eventually you go back to normal again. That's not how God has called us to live. He wants us to live a life of steady, consistent growth and intimacy with Him. Does that make sense? In order for that to happen, we want to position ourselves in a place so the Holy Spirit is not just visiting us, but He becomes a guest who finds His home in us. Does that make sense? That's really the motivation I have for today. Jesus said this in John 14, 23. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching... My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. So, according to this passage, the key to hosting, continually hosting the presence of the Holy Spirit is obedience and love. I know that's a lot of spiritual language, and my motivation today is to give you three very practical action steps to be able to do this, practice working on this. See, a lot of times we see these loving the Lord as this black or white thing, like either you love him or you don't, but the way I see it, it's a growth continuum for us to continue to practice these action steps so we can get better at loving God. Does that make sense? So I want to start with very, very, I want to to give you guys three very practical action steps that you can take home today and work on. But before we get there, I have to lay out the case of how unique, ridiculously unique it is that we get to be the hosting uh, to be the vessel that hosts the presence of the Holy Spirit, because if you don't understand how precious, how fragile it is that we get to host His presence, you're not going to do the work it's required to become the pre- the hosting presence of the Holy Spirit. Okay, because it's going to take work. You know the the ugly four letter word in the church: work. W O R K. So I want to first establish why hosting the Holy Spirit is so important and so crazy good for us. Okay. So you know how in the Old Testament there's foreshadow or reflection of the New Testament. Okay? We call it archetypes or types that points to it is it's an imperfect version that points to the perfect version in the New Testament. Okay. So I'll give you for example. You know the Passover. You guys remember the Passover, right? The Passover, you have to kill the lamb, you take the blood, you put it over the door frame that protects your family from the avenging angels, right, during Exodus. What is that a reflection of? What is that a foreshadow of? It's a foreshadow of Jesus, because Jesus becomes that perfect lamb whose blood is shed for our sins, right? That's the perfect reflection of that. Think about the great King David, the legendary King David. As great of a king he is, who is he a reflection of? He's a reflection of the King of Kings, who's going to come in the future—Jesus Christ Himself, right? There's tons of these foreshadows—the imperfect version in the past that point to the perfect version that's coming in the future, right? There's the forty days of forty years of wilderness for the Israelites, right? The forty days of flooding that reflects to Jesus being tested in the wilderness for forty days. There's all these different signs that points to the future. You know what is the type? Okay, the foreshadowing the old testament for the vessel that hosts the Holy Spirit is the temple, the temple of God. The Jews constructed two temples. Okay. King Solomon built the first temple. Okay, and these temples were spectacular. If you go to first Kings chapter 6, it describes the temple. Solomon covered the inside of the temple with pure gold. He extended gold chains across the front which were overlaid with gold. They overlaid the whole interior with gold. This thing is spectacular, is beautiful, is magnificent. It took seven years to build this temple. Now, as magnificent as this first temple was, the second temple was even grander. It took 46 years to build. Think about that for a second. There's people who start building this temple, they would never live to see the completion of it because it took that long to build. This magnificent temple was expensive. It was sacred. People from all around the world, Jews from all around the world will come to this temple to worship, make pilgrimages to, to worship at this temple. But regardless of how beautiful this temple was, the presence of God did not remain. In fact, when you see Jesus in the temple, what was he doing? He was flipping over, money-changing tables, casting out animals because they have turned the house of prayer into the den of thieves. In Matthew 24, Jesus actually predicted the downfall of the temple. He says, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Of course, this prophecy came true in AD 70 when Romans sacked Jerusalem. They burned down the temple. The fire burned so, so bright, so hot, that the gold melted and went beneath the the bricks and the rocks. And then when the Roman soldiers came to get get to the gold, they actually had to take the rocks off of each other to get to the gold. To which, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy, that these man-made temples, regardless of how magnificent they are, was torn down and could not host the presence of God. You guys know where I'm going, right? The temple, awesome, beautiful, magnificent, simply a shadow a foreshadow of what to come in the New Testament. You know, Stephen, right before he was killed, right before he was stoned, he preached about this. He said, David found, this is in Acts chapter seven, he said, David found favor of God and asked for the privilege of building a permanent temple for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who actually built it. However, the most high doesn't live in temples made by human hands. As a prophet says, heaven is my throne, Earth is my footstool. Could you build me a temple as good as that, asked the Lord? Could you build me such a resting place? Didn't my hand make both heaven and earth? The answer is no human hands, no human creativity, ability can build the resting place of God. But one person can. Jesus Christ. Through his redemption, he has established his resting place in us and us the old testament foreshadow of the magnificent temple is now fulfilled in us being the new temple of the of the presence of the holy spirit first corinthians chapter 3 don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of god and that the spirit of god lives in you god will destroy anyone who destroyed this temple for god's temple is holy and you are that temple I don't think we truly recognize how ridiculous this is. Paul is saying this magnificent temple that took 46 years to build, 46 years to build, is now obsolete, because guess what? Christ has established a new resting place, and that new resting place, it's in you. To the Jews at the time, it's sacrilegious. It's irreverent. It's crazy. Paul, how dare you say this? How dare you say these broken, imperfect vessels are now the sacred holding presence of God himself. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. See, if you truly understand how crazy it is that God would choose us to host his presence, there's probably a little bit more fear of God in you, right? But at the same time, you probably walk a little straighter, a little greater confidence because God's saying, you are going to be my resting place. Amen. But just like all the other temples, it doesn't mean the presence of God will stay. How do we greet the Holy Spirit not just as a visitor, but as a permanent guest? How do we make sure the Holy Spirit gets his bills at your house? How do we do that? Let's go back to John chapter 14.23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me or obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. You know, as I was exploring this passage, I felt the Lord led me to a very familiar passage that every single one of you knows. You've probably heard it a million times, okay? The greatest commandment, the most important one to answer Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord with all your heart soul, mind, and all your strength. See, the Lord has shown me embedded in this very simple verse that we all are familiar with is the key to living a sustainable lifestyle, Okay, growing a sustainable lifestyle that will teach you, that help you host the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, for some of you, you might be veterans of this. I want to share three keys with you that's going to help you refresh your memory to keep practicing this. But for some of you, The idea, some of these ideas are brand new. You have never been trained, never been taught in these things. What I want to urge you is to take some of these practical uh, things, action steps, and start incorporating into your life. And your life will no longer be a spiritual yo-yo. Up and down, up and down. Your emotions will be up and down, up and down. You will develop a steady walk with God. How do I know that? Because I did it for myself. That's what happened in my life. I grew up in the church. I'm a pastor's kid, but my spiritual life was a yo-yo. I go to a conference, I feel a spiritual high, and then a week later, I'm back to normal. I'm back to the beginning. Nothing has changed. It wasn't until I started developing some of these skill sets, working hard to establish some of these action steps into my life, that my life began to change. So are you guys ready for some practical steps? Yes. Okay. Buckle your seatbelt, So I'm going to go fast and furious. Okay. Love the Lord with all your heart. Okay. What does that mean? The word heart here in the Greek is the word card- cardias, okay, cardiovascular, you guys know those words. And the Bible is rarely used to mean the biological heart. Instead, it's used to mean the center of your emotions and your will, your desires and your passions. The same word for heart was used in Matthew six twenty-one: Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. The message translation of Mark 20, uh, 12, 28 is love the Lord with all your passion, okay? This is Andrew Main's interpretation of what does it mean to love the Lord with all your heart. Is to make God your number one passion. Make God your number one passion. Now, that sounds great, okay? It sounds good for a preacher to say that. But the truth is we have so many competing passions, We have a shopping mall of passions that everyone's trying to throw in your way. Every time you turn on TV, every time you open social media, every time you watch commercials, people are trying to throw passions in your face. How do we work on making Christ our number one passion? That's the practical question we have to ask, especially for young people. Okay, right? That's a realistic question. I'm not assuming every person loves God with all their heart. But we need to work on this. How do we work on making God our number one passion? Now, the first step you need to understand is this. You have control over what you're passionate about. I want to say it one more time. You have control over what you're passionate about. You're not victims to the whims and fancy of whatever you feel. Okay? I grew up with that understanding. I grew up thinking I feel what I feel. I'm passionate what I'm passionate about. I have really no control over that. That's simply not true. We are made in the image and likeness of God. God's giving us ability to control our passions. I'm gonna give you some examples. Now, what I'm not saying, it's easy to control your passions. You hear me? There are certain passions that's really, really hard to get rid of. And there are certain passions that's really, really hard to pick up, okay? For example, right now, I'm starting to develop a passion for doing dishes. It took me probably three or four years to develop this, okay? I'm I'm still not fully in love with it, but I'm getting there. I'm just giving you a very practical example, okay? Certain passions are harder to pick up. That doesn't mean I shouldn't be passionate about it. I'm going to give you another very silly example. Now I'm going to get to a more serious example, okay? So back in college, back in 1997 when I went to college, long time ago, I've never really heard about the sport called ultimate frisbee. Okay, ultimate Frisbee, never really heard about it. Certainly not passionate about it. could care less for it. Never thought, man, I'm going to go out and throw some Frisbee, okay? Four years later, after I graduated college, I was in love with the sport. I talk Frisbee, I carry Frisbee everywhere I go, okay? People are like, why do you carry that thing? Because I'm passionate, it's like my baby, I love ultimate Frisbee. What happened? What happened? Well, in college, somewhere along the way, I befriended a bunch of people who love ultimate Frisbee. So I play Frisbee with them. I start throwing Frisbee with them. We start talking Frisbee. I went to the tournaments. I went to their practice. I joined the team. I spent three days a week going to practice, running around, chasing the Frisbee like a dog. You know, I went to practices. I went to tournaments. I paid for tournaments. I spent energy and time and investment into this silly sport that most of you don't even consider a sport. (laughs) Four years later, I became passionate about Ultimate Frisbee. Now for you, you might be... I don't know, the Cubs, the Bears. You live in a different region. When you move to Chicago land, everyone's talking about Chicago sports. You see it on TV all the time. Someone invites you to a Cubs game. They finally won the championship. Everyone's guilting you by wearing their jersey. And somewhere along the lines, you're like, you know what, I love the Bears. I love the Cubs. You see what happens? You develop a passion. I'll give you a little more serious examples. You guys might not know this. Some of you do know this. You know, when a mother gives birth to a newborn, her biology literally changes to bond with the child. They've done a study to show neurologically, okay? Neurologically, her neurons change to connect and bond with this child. Now, some of you guys know this. But did you know the same neurological change can also happen to the father? And not just the father, any man who's taking care of the baby, but it only happens if the father or the man intentionally direct himself to care for the baby. Does that make sense? The mother naturally bonds with the baby. But for the father to neurologically change and bond with the baby, he must actually care for the baby. I'm talking about changing diapers, waking up in the the night, putting the baby to sleep, playing with the baby, rocking the baby. As he directs his focus and attention on this newborn, his neurology changes, his biology changes, his hormone level changes to adapt to this baby. If you don't believe me, look up this article. It's a peer review article, Neuroplasticity in Fathers of Human Infants. Look it up. It's a peer review article. This is not even like in the Bible. This is a scientific article. Neuroplasticity, which means your brain changes, in fathers of human infants. Now, when I first read this study, what drove me nuts, what surprised me, was that I always thought you first have passion and then you pursue out of that passion, right? What this example is telling me is no, you start pursuing first. And then in the pursuit, in the investment, in the waking up middle of the night, in the caring when the baby is yelling and screaming at you, you change to develop the passion. You guys see the difference? When we direct our focus and our effort, we can develop our passions. This is neurological. This is biological. God has wired us to do that. If you never knew this before, let your mind be blown because you have ultimate control over Your passions. The point is, we have to take ownership of our passions, our desires. If you don't, if you let your passions just kind of go with the flow, whatever Hollywood delivers or social media delivers or whoever you hang out delivers, like I did in college, if you let your passion flow, then you will be directed by the world, not the things of God. You know, when people say they fall out of love with their covenant partners, what does that mean? I'm saying go back and rekindle those flames. Redirect your passion to rekindle those flames. Don't let your passion just flow to someone else. Rekindle those passion, those flames. You can do it. When we allow our hearts, our passions, our desires, undirected by God or scriptures or by each other, accountability partners, when we just let those passions lead us, you know where it leads us to? leads us to death. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, and beyond cure. Who can understand it? We are not victims to our passions. We are not victims to our hearts. We can get rid of old passions. We can pick up new passions. In fact, we do it all the time. Think about when you're younger. What are some passions you had back then that you don't have passion for right now? I think about. I mean, I have young kids right now. They're passionate about. I don't know. Back when I was a kid. G.I. Joe, girls are passionate about Barbies, I don't know, cartoons, Star Wars. Some of you are still passionate about Star Wars. (laughs) But when you get a little older, don't your passions change? As you mature, shouldn't your passions change? As you get a little bit older, when you have a family, all of a sudden you're like, I'm passionate about taking care of my family. I'm passionate about keeping our country free. I'm passionate about taking over for God's kingdom for the world, advancing his kingdom. That's maturity. That's growth. Your passion should change as you develop. And Jesus is saying here, he's saying, I'm going to cut to the chase, guys. If you want to mature, your ultimate passion, the greatest passion you should never grow out, you will never grow out of, is passion for God himself. So if you want to pursue a passion, pursue God as your number one passion. Now, let's cut to the chase. How do we do that? Practically, how do we pursue God? How do we cultivate a passion for God? Now, I think about my relationship with my wife. Do I always burn with ultimate, uh, an unadulterated passion for my wife? No, I don't. Especially when things get busy, kids are always screaming, blah, blah, blah. We have no time for each other. We feel like we don't. So what do we do? See, the question is, do I want to always have passion for my wife? Yes, I do same thing for her. So what do we do? We have to intentionally direct our time. We go on dates together. We spend time. You know what cultivates passion from the very fundamental fundamental perspective? Time, attention, focus. Time, attention, focus is the breeding ground for kindling this passion. The first step If you feel like, man, I'm losing passion for God, I don't feel that passion for God, the first thing you need to do is you need to spend time with God. You need to carve out time, sacrifice for time, time that you'd rather be sleeping or working or with your family. You gotta carve out that time. You gotta turn off your phone so you're not distracted. Stop thinking about work and focus on God. I know it could be hard, it could be weird. Okay, you feel like you got to do something. This is not a checklist. This is not like I got my devotional checklist. You're spending time sharing your heart with him and asking him to share his heart with you. Now, if you have never done this before. You have never done. You have never practicing cultivating your emotions and your heart towards God. I don't recommend you try to start with like an hour a day. I'm going to tell you, start 15 minutes a day. Just 15 minutes. Carve out. Can everyone carve out 15 minutes every day? Put away your phone, any other distraction. Go hide in the church parking lot in your car. That's where my wife goes sometimes. She's like, I'm just going to go to the church parking lot. I'm going. You can go read, no. You can go listen to music, no. I'm just going to go sit there and spend time with the Lord. You know, it's tough sometimes when life gets busy. But can you carve that time out and just share your heart with God and let Him share His heart with you? read his love letters read his word listen to a love song and pour your emotions and your heart into him and let him pour into you bit by bit slowly but surely you will begin to cultivate a passion for god i know this is because that's how i that's how i did it you know i grew up in the church for years devotional time was a checklist it was a burden it was a chore it's like doing dishes I couldn't cultivate a desire for that. I find myself keep dropping off, just trying to do it for a long time, then be unable to do it, and I give up until one day I'm just like, you know what, I'm going to just cultivate my emotions for Him. I'm going to start slowly, 10, 15 minutes at a time, I'm going to do it every day. And that 15 minutes grows to 20, to 25, and 30. And now I'm in the place in which I so look forward to that intimacy time with God in the morning. If I don't have it, it's like I'm missing something. Does that make sense? But you start by cultivating that passion slowly with God. Amen? Amen. Is that practical? That's pretty practical, right? Everybody got 15 minutes you can spend to cultivate that passion. Okay, Directing your passion. That's what it means. The beginning step to love the Lord with all your heart. Second step, love the Lord with all your soul. The, The Greek word for soul here is psyches, where we get psychology. It means breath or spirit or identity or personhood, and I want to be honest here, I don't have a lot of revelation about loving the Lord of all your soul. I feel like this is not an action step driven, it's more of a poetic sense of loving God with your essence, everything you are. And I have a lot of content, so I'm going to jump over this one. I'm going to go to love the Lord of all your mind. So loving the Lord of all your mind, the Greek word here is dionoisis. It means deep thought, the exercise of your mind, or understanding. So, you know, you realize the scripture teaches that the the renewing of our mind is a crucial part of our Christian walk. When Jesus said, remember, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. You guys remember that? The word repent, it's translated repent. But the actual word is the Greek word metaneo, which literally means change your mind. So Jesus was saying, hey, the kingdom of God is coming. There's a whole new system coming. Get ready to change your mind. You have to change how you think. Okay, Romans 12.2, of course, says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is very similar to your passion, to your heart. Because like the heart, your mind also directs your life. But like the heart, we are not victim to our thoughts. Does that make sense? Just like we have to get rid of some bad desires and passions, there's some bad thoughts we have to filter out. Just like we gotta pick up good habits and good passions, we have to hold on to good thoughts. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, growing up, uh, I, was, I learned a lot of disciplines, like make sure I brush my teeth every day, right? Go to school, do my homework, go to church on Sunday, right? Those basic disciplines, but I never learned the discipline of guarding my mind. I'm trying to teach my kids that right now, teach them on the, on the fundamental level that they have control over their minds. I didn't know that. Now in college, I was tormented with all kinds of thoughts. Okay, my, my mind was a circus, okay? Anxiety, fear, thoughts of loneliness, thoughts of comparing myself to other people, tormenting me, thoughts I'm a loser. Just like every thought that came to me, I felt like I had to entertain because they were my thoughts. I thought they were my thoughts. I didn't understand that I actually had, can take control and filter them. And along the ways, I've discovered a couple of these verses in the Bible, which no one's ever taught me before. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Yeah. Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, understanding will guard your mind and heart in Jesus. Philippians 4, I'm going to come back to this one. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, think about such things. God is very directly commanding us to direct our thoughts. There's so much we can talk about directing thought. There are books written on this. We can do a whole series about honoring God with your mind. But I just have one practical action step for you to practice. You have never learned how to guard your mind, how to battle your mind before. I just got one basic action step to which we need to all practice. If you, don't, if you forgot about this, you need to be reminded of this. Okay? You guys ready for my action step? If you really want to love God with all your mind, you need to filter everything you watch with your eyes, everything you listen to through Philippians chapter four, verse eight. True, noble, right, pure, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. If it passed through that filter, then allow yourself to consume it. You know, when I was tormented by all those thoughts, my, my mind's literally a circus. Okay. Not a good, funny circus, but a dark, demonic circus. Okay. I held onto this verse like a life raft. And I start diminishing things I watch, okay? I realized that when I would stop watching all people's highlights on social media, all of a sudden, the thoughts of comparison and how I'm such a loser starts to diminish in power, right? When I stop watching the doom and gloom and everything's going to worse and worse, the anxiety and the fear in my heart starts to diminish. You guys know the, the phrase, you are what you eat, right? Which is true. But there's another phrase I like to think about. Your mind becomes what you watch. Because your mind will replay whatever you consume. If you watch horror films all the time, you'll be filled with horror. If you watch violent films all the time, anger and rage might rise up in you, right? If you listen to provocative music or sexually explicit films or movies, no wonders you're filled with lust. You know how... um, you know, I hear the story of people go to the doctor, and they're like, you know, doctor, I want this medication. I want, I want this procedure. Help me. And the doctor's like, hold up. Before we do all that, I'm going to ask you a few questions. Do you eat healthy? No. Do you get enough sleep? No. Do you drink enough water? No. Do you exercise? No. Well, before we do all that, let's talk about your lifestyle, right? Because the problem is we want some medication to deal with the symptoms, But then you leave the hospital, and next thing you know, you just pick up whatever junk to make it much worse. The same thing with your mind. People come to me, it's like, I deal with lust, I deal with anxiety, I deal with fears. Okay, okay, before I pray for you, let's talk about what's your lifestyle. Because after I pray for you, you go back, you turn on the radio, you listen to whatever junk you listen to, and then we just negate it all the time we spent. What is your lifestyle? What are you actually consuming? You can have the best therapist, best pastor, best doctor, but you don't change what you consume, nothing's going to change. Now, some of you, I know you're seeing this already, Pastor Andrew, if you know, if I follow this, then there's nothing I can watch, nothing I can listen to. And my reply is maybe, maybe not. But some of you, it might be wise if you're dealing with toxicity and your mind is just a mess. Worshipping God with your, with your, with your mind is the last thing that you can do. That you probably need to go on the media fast. Take a little break, detox, right? But I want to encourage you. I want to say whatever is noble, pure, admirable is not necessarily Christian. Okay, the example I use is you know, I watch, say, Lord of the Rings. You guys know the movie, the series, Lord of the Rings. Now, it's not overtly Christian, and there's some violence in there, and there's like really ugly orcs with teeth and all that stuff. But what does it do in your heart when I watch the movie? For me, inspires me. Inspires me to self-sacrifice for my family, for my nations. Inspires me for loyalty and honor. I see beauty in the friendship they have, and I see that all those things are created by God. Inspires me to greatness. Inspires me to intimacy with God. So I want to ask you the question. Another way to think about this is when you watch this content, what does it inspire you to do? There's content I watch that's not overly Christian, but it inspires me to change the world. I'm not going to name them because, you know, you guys might judge me for it. But for me, my own heart, I have to watch it, because what it does is it inspires me to live for God even more. And there's other stuff that might be fine for you. That was like, more of the overt Christians I can't watch because it discourages me. Does that make sense? What inspires you? you got to ask yourself that question. What does it inspire you to do? You know, sometimes we go into the nature, we watch the awesome sunset. And you know what inspires me? I see the beauty of God. I see the perfection of God. I'm consuming that all day long because it inspires me to greatness, it inspires me to love God more. What does the content you consume inspire you to do? Is it beautiful? Is it pure? Is it praiseworthy? Does that make sense? Is it honorable? Learning how to love the Lord of all your mind starts with what you consume. All right, I'm gonna go to the last one. Love the Lord with all your strength. Love the Lord all your strength. The Greek word for strength is this: ischios. Power, might, force, or ability. This refers to loving and honoring God with your God-given ability to make a difference, to change the world, to create, to innovate. In other words, to work. To work. Colossians chapter three, verse seventeen: Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Through Him. Now, for those of you who have come to our Market Share Ministry, quick plug: uh, you might be familiar with the term avodah. Avodah. The word avodah is the Hebrew word that means work. It also means worship. It also means service. Avodah. A V O D A H. In other words, to the to the Jews, to the to the Hebrews, there is no distinction between work and worship. There's no compartmentalization. Okay? You're seeing beautiful songs in the temple, that's worship. But you're working out in the, in the field, building a house, it's also worship. When Jesus surrendered his life to the cross, that was worship. But guess what? When Jesus was building that perfect chair as a carpenter, that's also worship. Do you guys get it? You guys know what I'm talking about? That's why to the Hebrews, it's the same word. Avada is work, which means worship, which means service. For so long, we have compartmentalized our vocational work okay, from worship. So we only worship like on Sunday or only worship when we're in church or when we're doing ministry. But what we do rest of the week is just secular. If you have that mentality, what we have done is we have relegated the majority of our waking hours to secularism. That's not how God's designed us to be. He says we are living sacrifices. That means everything we do should be worshiped. When you're driving your kids to work, it's worship. When you're teaching your kids, that's worship. When you're standing in line, that's worship. When you're at work, it's worship. In fact, we should be doing some of our greatest ministries in where we are 40 to 60 hours a week in our vocation. So you guys know the word vocation actually means your calling? vocation actually comes from work call to call. Your vocation was designed to be your calling for this season, maybe not forever, but for this season, it is your calling. That is worship. So what does it mean to love the Lord of all your strength? It means that for this season, where you are at work right now, you give your best. You give your best. It means you're on time, you work hard, you pay attention, you're diligent, you're careful, you're courteous, you're producing fruit, you're solving problems, you're honoring your boss, you're growing, and you're learning to be better and better and better. That's what it means to love the Lord with all your strength, to see your work towards not men, but towards God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You don't get my job. You don't understand how hard my job is. It's monotonous. It's boring. It's not exciting. Do you even know my boss? Do you even know my coworkers? It's really, really hard to give my 100% at this job or this job's beneath me. It's not my passion. Let's go back to passion again. I get all of that. I've been there. I've made my share of mistakes. I'm going to help you. This is the action step part, okay? The first step your first action step to take to treat work as worship and your, in your workplace, your vocation, is that you need to deeply understand stewardship. Okay? Stewardship means that nothing belongs to you. I don't just mean your finances. I mean your arms don't belong to you. Your legs don't belong to you. Your brain doesn't belong to you. Your talents don't belong to you. Your creativity doesn't belong to you. Your time doesn't belong to you. No resource belongs to you. Now we need to have a deep understanding all of this. You guys all know the parable of the talents, right? You're familiar with parable of talents, right? Matthew 25. The master before he went away, he went to some of his servants. He says, "Here's five talents. Here's three talents. Here's one talent. Okay, go and multiply this. I'm going to come back." So the guy with five talents says, "Wow, this is a lot of money." And I know my master expects a return. So he worked hard. He innovated. He started a new business. He took risk. You know, he did calculations. He worked his butt off. And he made five more talents. So the master came back. He says, hey, here's 10 talents all back to you. This is master said to him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Now the different servant, the guy with one talent, He looks at the guy with the five talent. He said, man, I really want his job. I really want his talent. Why didn't I get five talent? I only got one talent. It's worthless. It's monotonous. You know, it's beneath me. I don't really want to work hard. He's, you know, he's so much more money than I do. He looks so much better than I do. You know, he's got better friends. You know, he's got better opportunities. So what I'm going to do, I'm just going to dig a hole. I'm going to bury my talents. And when the master returns, I'll just give him back what's his. This is the master's reply. You wicked and lazy or slothful servant, for to everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, often in the church, we see issues of purity or morality as issues of consecration. That just means that it's holy issue. Holiness issue is stuff that God really cares about. But stuff like showing up to work on time, stuff like, you know, don't waste time, don't steal time, or taking accountability and being responsible and working hard every day, those issues are just kind of bonus issues. God doesn't really care about those issues because they're not consecration issues. Okay, That's the church culture I grew up in, at least. Not according to Scripture's not according to scriptures. The master said, you wicked and lazy servant, I'm going to cast you out into inner darkness. That's serious stuff. To me, the Lord is saying, producing fruit, growing, developing excellence, building, making it better, these are absolutely consecration issues. God absolutely cares about this. You guys remember the phrase, it's a rental, don't be gentle. You ever heard of that phrase before? You bring in the car say, oh, it's a rental, don't be gentle. What does that mean? It means that because it's not yours, right, don't really take care of it. Treat it like junk. It's not yours anyway. Loving the Lord all your strength reverses that completely. It says, because it's not yours, you got to take even better care of it. Now, I had a hard time learning this until one day the Lord gave me a couple revelations. So, you know, the story of my, me and my family is for years I was plagued with anxiety and fear over my kids. I just look at how toxic the culture has become, how people are treated, you know, people who believe in the Bible. I'm like, how am I going to raise my kids? You know, they're going to come for me. They're going to come for my kids. You know, how am I going to, I just full anxiety and fear to the point I got so angry and so frustrated. I took it out on those who are closest to me, which is my family. Okay. And one day the Lord gave me two revelations that shook me. Okay. Shook me. Scary, but also set me free. The first revelation is that one day he came to me. He's like, in my time with my intimacy with him, the Lord said to me, Hey, knock it off. Just, just tone to me. You are not their dad. I am. You are not their protector. I am. You are not their provider. I am. Stop freaking out. I got this. Man, it was sobering. It was sobering. It hurt me, right? Oh, they're not my kids. But it was also relieving because, wow, they're not my kids. God's got them. But the second revelation hit me even harder. They are not your kids. They're my kids. Don't you dare take out your frustration on them. Think about that for a second. If you came and say, hey, Pastor Andrew, I love you. You've babysit our kids. OK, was I'll babysit your kids. Your precious kids in my house, I'm watching. I had a tough day from work. I come home, and I took out my frustration on your kids. They did nothing wrong. I took out on them. How would you feel? You would be ticked off. You should be ticked off. I would be ticked off. How much more should I treat my kids if they belong to the most high king? Man, that was a moment I learned stewardship. Man. Because they don't belong to me, because my kids don't belong to me, I can't afford to treat them like this. Not just my kids, my wife. Yeah, she's my wife. But even above that, she's the daughter of the Most High King. Don't you dare treat her harshly. She's my daughter. She's my daughter. I was talking to my wife the other day. And she was just sharing about how one of the, si- one of the reasons she knows that God's real and is in our midst is because she saw how I grew in patience with my kids. Not, oh, you become a better preacher, or I saw how an amazing anointing is at church. No, none of that matters to her. What she looks at is when I'm frustrated with my kids, how do I react? And she says, I know you have truly grown because your patience for your kids has transformed you. Has changed everything. And I said, you know why? It's because the fear of God has come upon me to realize that they are not my kids. When I hug my son, when I kiss my daughter, okay, in my heart, I'm like, they belong to you, Lord. It gives me such peace and reverence for the king, but I got to take care of them better because I'm simply a steward. Amen. Why do I work hard here at the church? Why do I give my all to leaders? pour out my life, and just push because my leaders aren't my leaders. They're the Lord's leader. Why do I work hard in the church? Because this is not my church. This is the Lord's church. The reason we are lazy and we have, have, we have a hard time working hard is because we still think we are in charge. It's ours. It is not ours. It is the Lord's. Truly love the Lord of all your strength. Starts of a deep understanding of stewardship. When you wake up, you realize, man, this gift and talent that I have in my arms, in my head, in my body, the resource I have, none of it belongs to me. It changes everything. It gives you a new drive, a new motivation. Even the job might be monotonous. Even your boss might not treat you so fairly. It doesn't matter anymore because now you are a vessel. You are a steward for the Most High King. And you're going to have a hard time hosting the Holy Spirit When you're lazy, when you're not producing excellence, you're not bearing fruit. Because it is a consecration issue. So, what's the action step for this? Ask yourself a very basic question. Are you a steward or are you a king? Are you a steward or are you a king? Because if you're a steward and you treat yourself like a king, it only leads to death. Urge yourself, become a steward. So, in conclusion, do you guys want to host the Holy Spirit? Do you want the Holy Spirit to find his home in you? Get your heart, your soul, and your mind and your strength ready. Direct your passions. Work on your passions. Ask yourself honestly, where is the Lord? Where is my passion for the Lord or my hierarchy? Is it number three, number five, top 10, top 25? How do we work on that? So he moves up higher and higher so the Lord becomes your number one passion. Work on your mind. Simply filter everything you watch. What does it inspire in me? Finally, work hard. It doesn't get more practical than that. Work hard. Love the Lord with all your strength, your ability, your time, your money, your work, because everything has been given to you. Amen? Hey, guys, have a great Sunday. Way to praise the weather. Okay, have an awesome week. Love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind this week. If we want to pray with you, we'd love to be here. We'd love to pray with you. If you need some encouragement, have an awesome Sunday.